today. Uh, we're looking forward to having a meal together, and uh, I do hope every one of you can stay for that. Um, there's no reason to go buy some food somewhere else when it's right here, and you can enjoy it together. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Micah, Micah chapter 2. And uh, Micah seems like an odd place to go for a Thanksgiving day, even though it's not Thanksgiving day yet, Thanksgiving sermon. Uh, But we are preaching through the Minor Prophets, and Micah chapter 2 is the text that we're going to go through today. And I think surprisingly, it does help us to think about gratitude, but to think about gratitude in a different way. Uh, this passage is going to help us to think about being grateful when it's hard. <laughs> being grateful when it's hard. So if you found Micah chapter 2, uh, we want to stand together if you're able to read the passage of Scripture today. And uh, you can hold in mind uh, when gratitude is hard. How are these verses going to help us? Uh, Micah 2 And uh, if you've got your Bible, use it. If you don't, the handout in the bulletin has the verses as well. Micah 2 and verse number 1, it says, Woe to those who devise wickedness, who work out evil on their beds. When the light of the morning comes, they do it, for it is in the power of their hands. And they covet fields and then tear them away. And houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says Yahweh, Behold, I am devising against this family an evil demise, from which you cannot remove your necks, and you will not walk haughtily, for it will be an evil time. On that day, they will take up against you a taunt and utter a bitter wailing, and say, we are completely devastated. He exchanges the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To the fatherless one, he apportions our fields. Verse 5, therefore you will have no one stretching a measuring line for you by lot in the assembly of Yahweh. Do not speak dripping out words, they say, while dripping out words. But if you do not drip out words concerning these things, dishonor will not be turned back. Is it being said, O house of Jacob, is the spirit of Yahweh impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to the one walking uprightly? And recently my people have arisen as an enemy. You strip the robe off the garment from the unsuspecting passers-by, from those who return from war. The women of my people you drive out, each one from her pleasant house, from her infants you take my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place of rest, because of the uncleanness that wreaks destruction, a painful destruction." If a man walking after wind and lying had acted falsely and said, I will speak, dripping out words to you concerning wine and liquor, he would be the one who drips out words as a spokesman to this people. 
Verse 12 and 13 give us a promise at the end. I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep in the fold, like a flock in the midst of its pasture. They will be noisy with men. The breaker goes up before them. They break out, pass through the gate and go out by it. So their king goes on before them and Yahweh at their head. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, we are grateful to have your word today. We're grateful to have so many blessings around us uh, with our friends and our family and the food that's here prepared. Uh, But Lord, we are most grateful that you've given us your word because it's through your word we can come to know you as not only the maker of the world, but the judge and savior of it. And God, we praise you today that you are the God who saves. You save your people. Uh, You are the shelter for your people. When uh, the world uh, around us may seem dark and foreboding, there is safety and comfort in knowing your promises and your truth. And I pray today as we look at Micah 2, you would teach us uh, something about having gratitude in times when they're difficult. Lord, I pray the warning that you give to those who are greedy and taking advantage of others would uh, sink into our hearts as well. And we as your people would be marked not by a getting for ourselves, but by generously giving to others in gratitude, knowing that you have been the one who's given us all things. I pray today, Lord, the promises of your word might strengthen our hearts and give us joy and and hope in whatever situation we're in today. Or I pray as well for those who are at home and uh, sick and unable to be with us today, Lord, we pray that you might comfort them and you might use uh, the words uh, of the message today to strengthen their hearts to find their joy and hope in you. Lord, we pray for our kids upstairs as they continue to learn truth about you. We pray it would sink into their hearts and uh, transform the way they think about you and about their own life and what you want and expect of them. Lord, we do ask your blessing now uh, on this time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you for standing um, we, if you, it's your first time here with us, we like to stand when we read the scriptures just to give honor to it. Um, when you go to a ball game and it's time for the national anthem, everyone stands to give honor to it. And so what we are honoring here is the word, the word of God. Um, again, this is a strange text uh, to approach a Thanksgiving day because it seems to be all about oppression and greed as you read the beginning of it. Um, And that's exactly what Micah is addressing. Oppression, uh, the greed of the rich who are taking advantage of others. Uh, Certainly this is not a theme unfamiliar to scripture and unfamiliar to our experience. Uh, There are always those, it seems, who have power and instead of using their power as God intended to help and to serve and to protect others, They use it to take advantage 
They use it to get things for themselves. And these are the kinds of experiences that do not lead us to be grateful. They're the kind of experiences that lead us to be bitter, to be upset. How dare they? How could they do that? Why is God allowing this to happen? All of these kind of questions flood our minds. We look at our world today and we see powerful people that it appears are using their power to take advantage of others. And we cry out against that. We vote out against that. Uh, We try to do what we can to uh, limit that kind of oppression in our society. You say, oh, great. This is a great passage for our Thanksgiving praise dinner service. Um, Who came up with this? Well, we are preaching verse by verse through Micah. So the Lord came up with this because we started in Micah 1. And now we've got here to Micah chapter 2. But I think it's appropriate too. Because should we offer up praise and thanksgiving only when everything is going great? That's when it's easy to do, right? When, when you just got a raise at work. Uh, when your kids are like happy and they listen to you. When you talk to them. Uh, when your family is at peace. When things are going well. When your car has not broken down. Uh, when everything's going wonderful. You're like, oh, I'm so thankful for all the good things God has done for me. Those are the natural times when really anyone ought to be thankful. Anyone ought to be grateful. It's only the proudest and most foolish of a person who would not express thanks when everything is going wonderful. Our passage, though, is not a wonderful time. And can we be honest? Things are not always going wonderful for us. You may be here today and you may have lots of things not going wonderful in your life. Lots of things you wish were different. Maybe you are experiencing uh, what you feel is similar to what's going on in Micah 2, where somebody with more power or more wealth than you is oppressing you. You may feel that way. If we only gave thanks in the times when everything was perfect, I don't think we would have a whole lot of thankful times. Because the reality is we all experience hardships. Uh, The pilgrims who celebrated Thanksgiving in America, that our holiday uh, coming up is based off of, they did not celebrate Thanksgiving in a time when everything was just glorious. They were celebrating Thanksgiving at a time when they were just glad to be alive and have some food and make it through. These are times not of great bounty, but times of making it. And uh, that's when this uh, feast was held that leads to our holiday we have today. Now, the book of Micah was written about 2,700 years ago, 2,700 years ago. Um, I know some of you might remember that, but most of us do not. That was a very, very long time ago. It's It's like so far ago that it's hard to even comprehend. It's hard to wrap our minds around something so distant. But when you read the words uh, that we read, they don't seem very distant at all. 
There might be some images and things you're like, I don't know what they're talking about there. But what is very clear is that people are being oppressed and God's not happy about it and he's going to do something about it. You're like, well, that's a message that even though it's very old is something that we can grab a hold of and learn from. But beyond that, I think from this text, we can learn some lessons that will help us to be grateful even during difficult days. So what are they? What does Micah want us to know? Well, I've got three points in the outline that are in your, in your bulletin that you can follow along with. These are three truths that I think if we grasp what Micah is saying in them, they will, in fact, fuel our gratitude in difficult times. The first one is this, man's greed is devastating. Verses one through five, man's greed is devastating. The Lord is continuing in verse number one of Micah two, the indictment that began back in chapter one. Last week, uh, Pastor Derek introduced us to Micah by showing that the Lord is the judge and he indicts the leaders of Israel. Uh, He focuses on their sins against God. It's like a courtroom scene. The charges are read out against them. And that continues here in chapter two. But now he's dealing not so much with their sins against God, but their sins against one another. And so he says, woe to the oppressors, the ones who are greedy, trying to take advantage of others. Notice the way this is described in verse number one. It says, those who devise wickedness. They're thinking about doing these evil plans. They're meditating on it. They're, they're, they're maybe making a, a note and checking off all the things that they need to do to accomplish their wicked deeds. They're coming up with plans to take advantage of others. Uh, that's what their uh, focus is. Proverbs 4 talks about these kinds of people. In verse 16, it says, they cannot sleep unless they do evil. And they are robbed of sleep unless they make someone stumble. Here are people that are determined to do evil things. And the Lord says, woe to you who do this. You devise wickedness. It says they work out evil on their beds. Have you ever not been able to sleep at night? Um, I trust most of us have. Um, If not, if that hasn't happened to you, praise God. You've got a lot to be thankful for, right? But sometimes you can't sleep at night and various reasons, but sometimes it's because you've got something troubling on your mind. You're trying to figure it out. You're trying to figure out what to do, how to do it. How's it going to work out? What can you do? How can you respond? Um, This passage is describing people doing that, thinking about how they can take advantage of others, right? They, They can't sleep because they are trying to get at others, and they're trying to come up with a plan to do it. They have this desire to do evil. It's a premeditated thing. And you may say, that's exactly how people are today. In fact, that's how our government is today. They lie awake at night trying to figure out how to make our lives more miserable. And um, I can't speak for what they do at night. I'm not sure. But the reality is there are people like this. 
And they do not go unnoticed by God. Sometimes if we imagine that others are out to get us, we get this victim mentality where we think there's nothing that can be done. Uh, People are against me. And this gets reflected in all kinds of ways. You know, a a young person might think, oh, my my teacher just doesn't like me. That's why I'm doing bad in school. We we project it on somebody else. It's they're out to get me, so I am helpless. Uh, The greedy certainly do devastate others. And they do intend to do it. In the New Testament, there is a remarkable example of this very thing in the life of Jesus. Judas Iscariot is marked by greed. He's trying to sell Jesus out for some money. And he's plotting how to do it. He goes to the leaders of Israel in Matthew 26, 16, or or rather in verse 15, he makes an agreement with them. In verse 16, it says this, from then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. So he made his plan and then he's looking for the opportunity. Folks, this is how sin works. And by by Micah laying out for us how God is against them, he's exposing what they're doing. But what I want you to think about is your own heart for a minute. How do you give in to temptation? I think it's the same way. These ones that he's jumping on. Uh, temptation begins in our heart, and our thoughts, and our minds. You know, before a married person commits adultery, there's been a premeditation going on. There's been a path that's been walked down that led to that destination. And it's not just that sin, it's, it's any sin. It's how it works. How come when we met that person we don't like, we blurted out things we wish we could pull back in? (laughs) Well, it's because we've been letting those things dwell in our hearts and now we're just looking for a good opportunity or a good opportunity presents itself. So even as there is woe to these people, um, it's, it's the old thing, right? When you point your finger at someone else, you've got three pointing back at you. When we have this woe to those evil oppressors, look at what they're doing. There's a little warning for us in there too. If we want to avoid those sins, then we need to look at our hearts and not let our minds dwell on what's evil, on what's wrong. That's where we need to fight the battle against sin. That's where we need to not allow those thoughts in. That's where we need to repent and we need to turn to God and seek his help. James 1, 13 and 14 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. But then it says this, Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. So these greedy ones, they have these desires in their heart and they're looking for opportunities to bring them out. Um, And it says in verse one of our text, when the light of morning comes, they do it for it's in the power of their hands to do it. Verse two goes on to describe an example of this. 
they covet fields and tear them away. And then it says houses, and it talks about a person's inheritance. Now, you have to really back up in your mind to ancient Israel to have this be as impactful as it should be. Uh, Because as devastating as it would be for someone to take the place you live away from you, it was even more devastating for an Israelite to have the place they were taken, taken, a place they were living taken away from them. Because it wasn't just their home, it was their inheritance. Remember when Israel came to the land and it was divided up under Joshua, the Lord said that he was portioning out the land to the people. And the land was to be passed on from generation to generation to those families. And so possessing their land was really possessing what God had promised to their fathers way before. And losing it was a big deal. In fact, according to the law, uh, an ancient Israelite wouldn't be able to sell his land permanently because they had built into the law uh, a basically a 50-year window that at the end of that was the year of Jubilee. And at that time, the land would be returned to its original owner. So if you were hard-pressed for money, you could basically sell your property until the end of the year of Jubilee. So your property would be more valuable to sell if it's 40 years to go, uh, but it'd be less valuable if there's only, say, two years to go until the year of Jubilee, because then it'd be returned to you. To lose it permanently was terrible. And here, the oppressors are trying to do this. Now, when Micah writes, Israel is in turmoil. Um, Israel is divided at this point into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is either already carried away into captivity or is about to be carried away into captivity while Micah writes these words. And the southern kingdom is under threat from the same enemy. So what happens in times of war and times of turmoil? Everything gets turned upside down. Uh, records are lost, uh, people are displaced, people are killed, people are carried away into captivity. And so those that were still in the land that had some wealth and some power, they used it to confiscate everything they could. They're gathering up, taking it away, claiming it for themselves. No doubt they're destroying any records and moving landmarks that might mark the property boundaries because they're trying to get all this for themselves. This is the way that Micah describes what's going on in the land. It may remind you of a story of Ahab and Jezebel. Uh, Ahab wanted to get the field of another man, Naboth. And so he was crying because he couldn't steal this land. And so his wicked wife, Jezebel, uh, not wanting to upset her pouty husband, devises a plan, just like it's talked about here, and acts it out to have Naboth arrested, falsely accused, put to death, so his property can be confiscated. Exactly what Micah 2 is warning about. So what is God going to do? Man's greed is ruining. Man's greed is ruining not only others, but it ruins the greedy as well. Look at verse number three. Therefore, thus says Yahweh, 
Behold, I am devising. Go back to verse 1. Woe to those who devise wickedness. Now in verse 3, he says, I am devising. You're sitting around with your plans? Let me just let you know that I also have plans. And God's plans are that he is going to judge those oppressors. They will reap what they sow. If you know the story of Ahab and Jezebel, then you know what happens. If you don't, you can jot down 1 Kings 21 and you can go look it up later. The greedy devastate others, but they also devastate themselves. God refers to them as a family in verse 3. Uh, they are a whole group of people committed, united together, not by blood, but by greed. And he says he's going to bring judgment on them. It's very descriptive, um, the way he describes this in verse 3. You cannot remove your necks from it. Um, if you picture a noose, he's saying you're not getting out of this one. There's no escape from it. This judgment is sure. Those who are judged will have the tables turned on them. The Lord, in verse 4, is going to take away their portion. Uh, it says in the end of verse 4, he exchanges the portion of my people. He removes it far from me to the faithless one. It says the, the ones who are not of Israel, the enemy oppressors are going to come in and take away from you. What good is it for you to gain a whole bunch in greed when God is going to ultimately take it away? In verse 5, he says others are going to be setting the boundaries that these oppressors are going to have no say in the matter at this point. And there's a little bit of hope in the end of verse 5. It says, in the assembly of Yahweh. Even as all this devastation is going on, God still has a plan for his people. And this is a, a truth that you say, wait, how does this help me to be grateful? <laughs> I was waiting for that part and I haven't got to it yet. Well, the truth is, though oppressors may come now, though they may cause all kinds of hurt and pain in your life even, these things are not unnoticed by God. And God will judge. God will make things right. You know, the, the time of their oppression would be brief compared to the time of their judgment. And even, even if we recognize here that eternity is very, very long compared to whatever years we live here on earth, if it seems that people are getting away with evil, listen, God sees and no one is getting away. No one is escaping. Their greed and their rebellion may feel good temporarily, but it won't last you know, falling out of a plane might feel like flying uh, until you attempt the landing. But it's not going to last. There will be no joy at the end of pursuing this greed to get everything we want. Isn't greed the thing that robs us of gratitude? Because we want something else. We want something more. I say we because I do it very well. You know, you get something and then it seems like it's no time at all before you're looking around and thinking about something else you want to get, something else you need. 
you know, I love my car until I see somebody else's car. I'm like, hmm, I wish I would have had one of those. Maybe next time I'll get that one. Or I, I, I like the things I have until I watch TV and I see these commercials for all these things I don't have. And man, I need all that stuff. It's our greed that robs us of gratitude. And here, what does greed lead to? It leads to devastation. The key to being joyful and grateful is not to get everything you possibly can. That's never going to work. It is a dead-end street. Instead, we ought to ask, not do I have everything I want, but do I have what I need? And how do you know what you need, right? I always need something. That's what advertising is intended to do, to tell you you need all this stuff. A good way to think about how we uh, determine what we need is, do we use what we have? Do we use what we already have? If we use what we already have and we find we're still lacking, then maybe we need more and we need to work for that and we need to ask the Lord to provide it. But if I look at my own stuff, um, I'm sure I'm not different than many of us where you have things in closets or drawers, or garages, or storage containers that are full of stuff that you don't use, and yet we still think we need. This greed is devastating. God knows what these evil ones know. He knows what they're thinking, but they don't know what he knows. He is going to judge this greed. You know, as these oppressors are working out their plans and thinking everything is great, God knows all about it. And I want you to know that whatever you're thinking about right now, God knows all about it too. Whatever keeps you up at night, God knows all about those things. Whatever it is that you're so desperate to get that you think will make you happy, God knows about that. Whoever it is that's opposing you, oppressing you, hindering you in some way, God knows all about that. He knows. He sees. Do you know that? And do you know what he will do about it? This can be a question that brings great comfort. Right, Because when I'm opposed and I'm trying to do what's right, I can take comfort in the fact that God sees that. And he's got our back, and that's far better than anybody else, any man, to have God have your back. But it can also be a troubling question, a troubling thought to consider, that God knows what I think, and he knows what I want. And he will call every work into judgment. The reality is, if all of our thoughts and all of our desires were poured out uh, before the, the sight of everyone in this room, I think there wouldn't be very many people to stay for lunch, right? If, if every uh, lust and desire and, and thought that you had was put up on the screens right now, um, would you want to look around at people in their faces? Aren't there things that you've thought 
and that you've desired that you would be absolutely terrified to have put up before everyone. And yet God knows those things. There's no way to avoid it. He said, this is a noose your neck is not getting out of. We are guilty before God because he sees and knows all of our thoughts. The good news of the gospel is that while we're sinners, Christ died for us. While we're unworthy of God's mercy, he extends it. While we're guilty and deserve to be punished, Christ comes as the substitute for sinners. And he dies in our place, in the place of all that will come to him and repent and believe. There is forgiveness through Jesus. What a wonderful, wonderful message. The good news of the gospel is that though we're guilty, Christ has died for sinners. Now, I want to try to move on a little bit from this oppression and greed talk because we're aiming to focus on gratitude, right? And you may say, Pastor, this is not the message I was expecting. Thanksgiving dinner is waiting right in there and you are getting all in my business and uh, that's not really appreciated. Well, believe it or not, that was the exact same response Micah got. Look at verse number six. They say, do not speak. Micah, enough. Be quiet. Stop it. They're like, you're dripping out words. It's kind of a picturesque way of just all this stuff's pouring out of your mouth. Stop it. And he says, they're saying this while pouring all that out of their mouth. Um, And they are telling him to stop. They urge him not to speak. Uh, And verse 7, is it being said, O house of Jacob, is the spirit of Yahweh impatient? Are these his deeds? This is uh, basically here, we're, we're looking at people opposing Micah's message and saying, what are you talking about? God is so full of mercy and patience. He's not going to judge us. God is so kind. It's all okay. Don't worry about it. This is, this is the kind of thing that when your conscience feels guilty, you want to hear. You want to hear, oh, no, don't worry about it. That, that, that. Uh, That's just Old Testament stuff. God's not like that. Don't worry about it. It'll be fine. That's what they were saying to Micah. But Micah responds by defending God's character and the words that he's speaking. And this leads us to the second truth that I think will help us to be grateful when it's hard. And that is God's truth is liberating. God's truth is is exactly what we need when times are difficult. When when it seems like the, the whole sky is dark, that's exactly when we need the light of God's word. It says they're dripping out these words. Some other translations say they're speaking them out or preaching them out or even prattling, whatever that means. They're pouring all this out. What is the Spirit saying to the nation? They're questioning in verse number seven. Well, over in chapter three in verse eight, it tells us, on the other hand, I'm filled with power and with the Spirit of Yahweh and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression, even to Israel, 
his sin. Here is the truth for every one of us, friends. It is good for us to hear God's words, even if they cut right to our hearts. Even if they make us wince. Even if we want to avoid it. Even if we wish we never walked into the room today and we just joined lunch and skipped this part. Even if we want to avoid the reality. It's good for us to hear that God knows our thoughts. And he knows our hearts. And he will hold us accountable for it. And there is no escaping his judgment except for Jesus. Because it's only when we face the truth about who we are that we can experience the blessing of forgiveness. If you won't admit what's wrong, then it can't be made right. If you're not willing to own up to what God really sees in your heart, then how can you expect him to cleanse and change it? You you don't want him to see, but you want him to make it better. It doesn't work like that. We need the words of God, even when they're uncomfortable. As Micah says in the end of verse 7, Do not my words do good to the one walking uprightly? (laughs) It says, "For, for God's people, these are good words. Judgment coming to oppressors is good news. For the people being oppressed. This isn't a bad thing. When Jesus comes in the gospels and in his earthly ministry, he quotes from the prophets and he says he's come to heal the brokenhearted, right? To bind up the wounded, to heal the deaf and the blind and the lame, to bring salvation to his people. This is good news, but it comes to those who are broken. It comes to those who know they need forgiveness. You remember the story in the Gospels where Jesus is having dinner uh, with a Pharisee and this religious leader has uh, greeted him, brought him in and he's eating and then a, a woman comes in. A woman comes in and she begins to wash his feet and she begins to cry and weep and uh, she's a sinful woman. They're like, what is going on? Jesus explains what's going on. This woman has been forgiven much. So she is so grateful. Because she knows her guilt. She knows the blessing of forgiveness. And that's where the truth of God, even when it goes right at our hearts, is something to be so grateful for. Because it's through understanding our guilt and coming to Jesus that we can experience the joy of forgiveness, the blessing of knowing that I was once lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I'm seeing. I was guilty, but now I'm forgiven. I was condemned, but now I'm justified. I was destined for God's wrath, but now I have heaven as my home. What a blessing to know the good news of the gospel. The way that we will overcome evil is by trusting in God's truth. Just as greed should not mark us, but generosity and gratitude should, 
Uh, fear should not mark us. Uh, an avoiding of the truth should not mark us as God's people, but instead ones who long to hear it. It's like going to the doctor, right? You don't want the doctor to just ignore all the things that are wrong with you. Well, you kind of do, right? I kind of do. When I go to the doctor, I don't want to hear something that I, maybe you should take this, or maybe you should try that. I just want to be left alone. But the truth is, we need that bad news. If we want to treat those things, if we want to see good results, then we need to know what's wrong. And Micah is the prophet crying out to the people. They don't want to hear it, but it is their salvation. It is their hope. In verses 8 and 9, uh, Micah goes on to describe the way people were mistreating one another in a greater way. He, he basically says the people of God are now acting as enemies to other people. Um, in verse number 8, they're stripping off the garment of unsuspecting passers-by uh, from those returning from war. So there's people who have been giving themselves, trying to defend the nation. They're coming back. And what are the wealthy and the powerful doing? They're trying to take advantage of them. They're trying to rob them of anything valuable. Some other translations uh, put this in a way that says they're leaving the people who are passing by looking like they just returned from war. Like the people were walking along and then after the oppressors came, they looked like they'd been through the war and they'd lost everything they had. Uh, either way, these people are doing wicked things. They're driving out, it says the women in verse number nine. It, it would seem he's talking about the widows here. Instead of caring for them, they're driving them out and the children are being left without, he says, my splendor, his glory because of these oppressors. And judgment is coming. Verse 10 and 11, he emphasizes again, arise and go. This is no place of rest. And he says it reeks destruction. Such a vivid picture. <laughs> um, recently, uh, we had a rotten pumpkin. Um, rotten pumpkins reek. Reek. And when you try to move them and clean them up, oh, it's just not appetizing, right? God says about these Israelites who are oppressing others, saying, you're wreaking destruction. So when, when people get around you, destruction is there. Not only that you are causing it, but you are about to experience it. Friend, you cannot hide your actions from God. God sees and judgment is inevitable. They think they could get away with it. Look at verse 10 and 11. Uh, I, I, I'm sorry, look at verse 11. It says, if a man walking after wind and lying had acted falsely and said. Now, if you're reading from a different translation, it's going to say, different than that. The legacy standard Bible that I'm reading from is very literal. And so it's giving us this very literal translation, but it's picturing here a person who's speaking and they're just speaking after the wind. In other words, their words are meaningless. They're empty. 
Like when we went through the book of Ecclesiastes, it's the same idea. They're futile. They're empty. And what are the words they're speaking out? He says, I will speak dripping out words to you concerning wine and liquor. He would be one who drips out words as a spokesman to this people. Now, if I could just um, put this in my own words, paraphrase here. Micah says, look, if a prophet comes along and says, I'm here to preach to you about alcohol and partying, you would say, that's the prophet for me. That's what he's saying here. So this is the kind of thing you people want. You want someone to come along and tell you, let's have a good time. Don't worry about it. Enjoy all these things that you've got. Don't worry about anything. That is not the truth, though. That may feel good at the moment. But this was Israel's problem as they're headed towards captivity. That God is warning them over and over and over. As you read through the prophets that come before the fall, you see them saying stuff like this all the time. Judgment's coming, but you don't want to listen to us. You want to listen to the prophet who says everything's going to be fine. Over and over and over, this pattern comes up. Listen, God's truth might pierce your heart, but it will save your soul. It it might cause you pain as you have to be honest with yourself and, and humble yourself before God, but it provides salvation. There is forgiveness. There is forgiveness through God. Those who promote a prosperity gospel that never tell you what is wrong with you, those do not tell you the truth. Those are the prophets declaring the joys of wine and alcohol and avoiding the reality of being held accountable by God. So if we understand that man's greed is devastating, it can help us to be grateful because the answer to, gra- the answer to being thankful and joyful isn't getting everything we want. And when other people try to take from us, we can be grateful knowing that God sees and that he will take care of it. And as hard as it may be, it is good for us to be confronted with God's truth because God's truth is the way of salvation. The people needed to hear what Micah said, but they would foolishly rather listen to any prophet who would tell them what they want to hear. Micah turns to this again in chapter three, verse five. He says, thus says Yahweh concerning the prophet's who lead my people astray. When they have something to bite with their teeth, they call out peace. But against him who puts nothing in their mouths, they set themselves apart from war. Now we'll look at this next week, but it's a, it's a funny picture to me. It's like the false prophet who people are giving him stuff. They're, they're putting money in the offering. He's like, yeah, God's gonna bless you. But the people who aren't feeding him, he's like, oh, God's against you. You know, you need to give him the offering and then it'll be better. These false prophets, um, God says he's going to judge. The last thing I want you to see is in verses 12 through 13. And that is our hope is unfailing. 
All of this talk of judgment that began in chapter 1 with this courtroom scene indicting the people uh, is suddenly interrupted in verse 12 with a promise. I will surely. And then the next line, I will surely. God promises that his people will find refuge in him and find victory in him. The remnant is going to be sheltered. In in verse 12, he says, I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. This idea of a remnant is something that comes up often in Micah, and we'll return to it as we come to it in other places. But the majority of Israel is going away from God, not listening to people like Micah, but there are some that are. There are some that are trusting in the Lord, some that are turning to him. No doubt many of them are among the ones being oppressed who are crying out to God for help. And God says the remnant he is going to protect. In Micah 7 and verse 18, it says, Who is a God like you who forgives iniquity and passes over the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? He does not hold fast to his anger forever because he delights in loving kindness. Our God does not forget his promises. And so in hard times, we can still be grateful that God's word is true. And we can count on it. We can depend on it. Uh, Zechariah, the prophet, uh, makes a statement very similar to what is said here in Micah in chapter 8 of his prophecy, verse 4 and 5. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women will again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each man with his staff in his hand because of age, and the streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls playing in its streets. Uh, It's the image that's in verse 12 of our text where it's like all the sheep will be gathered in the fold and it's going to be noisy because there's going to be a bunch of sheep in there. God is bringing his people together. In the midst of the oppression of the wicked, God is watching over his own. There's a shelter in him. There's a shelter in the time of storm in Christ God is our refuge and our strength, Psalm 46.1. It's in him we can find our hope. It's in him we can find our comfort, our strength. It doesn't matter what anyone in the world does to you or says about you. In God, you can find a refuge. You can find a peace in him. But this promise from God is not just about giving personal comfort to someone going through a difficult time. This promise in verse 12 and 13 looks forward, not just from Micah's day to our day, but past our day to the end of days when Christ will return and gather his people, Israel, together. Uh, So this future regathering, why do I say it's a future regathering? Well, if you look at the end of verse 13, the one who's going before them and gathering them and leading them to victory, it says it's their king. Uh, Israel returned to the land after their captivity, not led by a king. But then the rest of verse 13 says that this king is Yahweh. It's the Lord himself. 
is going to be at their head. So this is something yet to come in the future. The king will come. He will gather all of them, verse 12 says. Not all of them returned from the captivity, but in the future, he will gather all together. Even after returning from the captivity in Zechariah 8 that I read earlier, um, it, it still gives the same promise for what is yet to come in the future. God has not forgotten his promises to Abraham. He promised Abraham that he would bless him and he would bless his seed and he would give them the land. And here, uh, Micah is looking forward to that promise that God will keep it. He will fulfill it. He will establish his people just as he promised. God is going to do that. He's going to watch over them and he's going to lead them to victory. Verse 13, the first begins with a unique description it says, the breaker goes up before them. The, the one who breaks, he leads the way. And this breaker is the king, Yahweh, who's their head. Um, if you're oppressed, what do you feel like you need to do? Break out of that oppression, right? Break out of those chains. Break through that wall. Break through that barrier. There are times where we feel we cannot break through. We cannot get forward, but the Lord assures us that he is the one who will break through. He's the one who makes a way. He will come just as he promised. Isaiah 52 says, but you will not go out in haste, nor will you go as fugitives, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. God is going to lead his people to victory. Even in times of difficulty, they were told to look forward, look ahead. The judgment that's coming on these oppressors is real, and it is definite. It's coming. There is help in God's word, even though it's painful at times. It is our hope. It is our confidence. It shows us the way of salvation in Christ, and that hope is unfailing. You can come to Jesus and he will forgive. He knows all about your heart. He knows all about what you've done. He knows about things you wanted to do but were prevented for some reason. He knows. And he says, whoever comes to me, I will in no way cast out. He says, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. There is forgiveness with him. Jesus is our savior who's gone on before us. He went to the cross to break the chains of sin, to break the power of sin, to break the condemnation of sin, so that all that come to him might be forgiven. Dear friend, if you do not know Christ as your own savior, I beg you today, to turn to him. Come to him. He will rescue. He will save. If you feel like you're weighed down and gratitude is hard, could I encourage you to turn your hope to God's truth and God's promises? No matter what people may do, God is going to make all things right. And that is going to last forever. 
forever. Much like we look back on things that happened early on in our lives and, and we see with a different perspective that hard time we went through and how maybe God used it. And, and we can look back and be grateful for that experience. Eternity is going to provide us a very long time to look back and see how God used the things that we endured here in ways that are good and glorious. And let us give praise and thanks to him because he is the God who will make things right, who will save his people. And may we find our refuge and our victory in him today. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we are amazed when we read your word and realize it is so relevant to us today. The kind of problems that people face now are really the same kind of problems that people have faced throughout all history. The names and the labels may change, but the problems are still the same. And your solution is still the best answer. Your salvation is still what we need the most. And you've promised it to all who come in faith to Christ. And so God, we confess again as believers that we believe that God the Son laid down his life for our sins. And we rejoice that we are forgiven because of what he has done. And we pray that all here that do not know that joy of forgiveness might today find it, might today open their hearts to see the guilt so that they might find the forgiveness that is promised in Christ. And Lord, we pray that as we go Uh, through these days until the time you do come and gather your people together and bless them with your promises that will last forever. Lord, we pray you'd help us to cling to you in hope, in faith, knowing that Christ is the author and finisher of our faith. He has gone before us to the cross, to the grave, and risen from the grave to sit at your right hand, that we that believe in him, might have that same eternal home in your presence. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name.